Thanks to Acast for hosting and monetizing the podcast. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals. It's not about being the best in the world. It's about doing what's best for the world. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview, Great Falls, offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbionica is your solution to great-tasting, all-natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant-based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or toxins. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit Symbiotica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to Symbiotica.com, C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A.com. Oh, hi, hello. This is Let's Talk About Myths, baby. And I am your host, Liv, here with yet more on Sophocles' Trichinii. Ah, Because how could I cover this incredible play without speaking to an expert who also loves it? This actually started way back when I first had Amy on the podcast to talk all things Sophocles back in the summer. We briefly touched upon Trichinii in that conversation, but I hadn't read it at the time. So as soon as I started reading it, I just knew I had to bring Amy back on the show. It's really becoming a favorite play of mine. It's just so interesting, and Dianera is so complex and sympathetic, and just so different from the other important women of Greek tragedy. I love her. I love this play. And I was so thrilled to talk to Amy about it. She provides some insights into the Greek of it all, how it would have been performed. And then she shares theories, so many good theories, and so much more, particularly when it comes to how Sophocles plays with prophecies from oracles. Ugh, it's so good. Now, I did record this episode just as I was writing the script for the final episode of Trichinii. So the second half of that episode, like after Heracles arrives, was written after our conversation. And I think some of our conversation affected the way I told that bit and in a good way. But now you can kind of see where that came from. But also it means I didn't fully know the ending of the play when we spoke. Like I did, I because I mean I know the story of Heracles' death, but not the way the play handles it the Zeus of it all. Ugh. 
We also go on a whole tangent about the Rock's Hercules movie. And I kept that in because I thought it was fun. And now it kind of holds me to finally watching that movie. (laughs) Similarly, Amy mentions the Movies We Dig podcast, which is a full-blown coincidence because I recorded last week's episode and this week's at totally different times. But isn't it perfect? You can catch Amy's episode of Movies We Dig, which, if you don't remember, is last week's guest's podcast. And Amy's episode is all about the Mummy trilogy. And yes, I was really mad that someone got to that before I did. (laughs) I also kept in a big bit of Amy talking about building a course around gender in the ancient world because, I mean, that's just so insightful and cool. And if courses like that existed when I was in university studying classics, I could have started this whole career probably a lot earlier. (laughs) And so many of you are always asking about my experience studying classics. So you're going to get a lot more relevant information out of hearing from a current university teacher of classics like Amy because I graduated 10 years ago. Anyway, that was a lot of behind the scenes info, but it felt interesting and pertinent. On to the episode. Ugh. Sophocles, Dianera, Heracles, Aeoli, Zeus. Ugh. Zeus. Conversations, a most Sophoclean prophecy. Women and wordplay in Sophocles' Trachinii with Amy Pistone. Dive right into the Trachinii. Yay! This is this is really fun. I'm I'm looking forward to it. This is so exciting. I finally read, I'll admit, most of it. I'm working on the last episode right now. So I'm like, I'm just towards the end. And I was like, I could just speed read all of it. I know what happens. It's fine. So I'm like, <laughs> but I, I, I took a play that I didn't know very well and turned it into like, okay, three episodes of me obsessing over it, which is what I do with every new play that I read. <laughs> but this one well, was- I'm so excited to get to talk about it because like, it's one of these plays that for the longest time, nobody, like it was, it was always like, uh, like kind of the black sheep of the software family and it's it might be my favorite i mean like they're oedipus rex is you know like classic antigone like they're they're they deserve to be classics but this is probably just like my personal favorite mm-hmm. of of his plays so i'm i am so excited to have an excuse to get to yeah. geek out about it with somebody i can see why it would be like it's definitely turning into one of my favorite plays for sure just because I mean, and I don't really have like a structure for how we're going to do it. So just kind of, you know, talk about the play generally. A cat just jumped up in my lap so that you always have to make a sound when he does it too. Oh, sweet baby. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. So, I mean, I basically just want to like dive right into everything. But Dianera, I think, is the obvious reason why this play is just so good. Like she's just so great. So can I can I give you like a fact that might make you even more like just obsessed with Dianera in this? Um, so two two facts. One is like a, an etymological fact that her name um, and different translations like sometimes explain this and sometimes don't. But her name more or less like etymologizes or translates out to um, man killer. Mm. Um, and so there's this this kind of idea that we see in a lot of tragedies about how like someone's name, you know, this like nomen omen, like somebody's name like has something to say about the kind of person they're going to be or the kind of person they are. Um, and like you see this with Helen that people like kind of pun or like etymologize her name to being uh, from a verb for to take mm. um, like to seize and then so sometimes like translators do all kinds of fun stuff to try and translate the pun which is 
famously hard to translate puns. Um, but they like, you know, of course, like hell, she was, you know, Helen, she was held to ships, held to the men, held to the, the city. Um, and essentially in the Greek, it talks, it's like, you know, like she's, she's a taker, right? She's the person who sees the gold and this war took, took so much from us. And we should have, there's kind of this weird way of like, we should have seen this coming because it's right in her name. It was right there. Mm-hmm. Um, which, so Deanera, like nobody really comments much on it in the play. They're not like, oh, we should have known. But <laughs> yeah. the fact that there's this kind of built in, like, yeah, she's not going to be able to avoid destroying in some way um, the the man in her life, mm-hmm. um, the, her husband. And so that that is just a side fun, like etymological tidbit. But then the part that I love is, so for a lot of plays, we can kind of deduce who, like, which roles the same actor would have played just right. in terms of exits and things. And for this play, we're, like, pretty much the, I, I don't know if there might be some debate, but we, we for the most part, are pretty convinced that um, the actor that plays Daenerys is the same actor that plays Heracles. I was just going to guess so, that when you said right? it, because, like, like, she's on the stage, like, the whole time until wow. she's not. Which is like it's so great because you get this like right that that this too because it's really it's like the story of her and then the story of him and they never yeah they're never there together and the whole play is about their like their relationship and that they're never they never talk to each other they never like look at each other they're never on stage together um, but it also makes this like really um, I think this sort of really powerful and I saw a staged production a while back and they had the same actor play both of them mm-hmm. and like being able to see that is is just kind of really makes you think about like the relationship between them and like are they you know are they versions of the same person in some sense are they like are they does that highlight how different they are but it it kind of forces you to think about that when you're like oh that's that's the same body that's the same like that's the same person that I just saw as as Dayanera and like she left and then her husband comes in yeah oh that's so interesting yeah the moment you said that I was like wait oh I bet it's got to be Heracles that's so cool (laughs) because yeah I mean I've just in the writing of the scripts um, for when this is going to air or when the, the my story of it is going to air, uh, I've just gotten to the part where Dianera dies. And then I was like, basically my brain just kept staring at the screen like, okay, I have to write more. But also I've kind of, I've already written like 3000 words of this tragedy today and maybe I'm going to take a moment. <laughs> <laughs> well, and this is one of the like, okay, so quick, quick side note tangent. Um, and and I apologize if this is like stuff you've already talked about and you're just like, oh, I always knows love about it. This. Don't but, worry. <laughs> um, so one of my my constant things I come back to is that I Aristotle's poetics, which like totally shapes how much we read tragedy and all of the best tragedies like don't fit what he thinks they should be. And this is like a classic two part tragedy, which he's like, no, plot should be single. Like it should be one plot. It, we don't want these dumb like half this, half that kind of plots. Like that's that's poor writing. And it's like this is such a good play and the fact that and you know you get a lot of these where it is it it's exactly the thing that he's complaining about in in plot structure and like it's such a good play if if you don't think that good plots can be written like this then i question your ability to know if like what a good play is because this is such a compelling story um but like this part where you know any of these plays where there's there's a, a clear split in the middle um hippolytus is one of these where mm. you know phaedra is there at the beginning and then and then she dies and now it's a play about Hippolytus and it's a play about Theseus and things like that. And I mean, same deal with with this play that it's it's this very and I in a lot of ways I find those two part structures to be great because it's it's sort of a, a play that's about 
two different things and and your brain has to be like how do those things react or interact with one another like what am I supposed to do about the juxtaposition of these two different storylines so like grief or loss or you know but it's always like something happened and then someone is is reacting to it which is kind of fundamentally what I think tragedy is about is about how we react to terrible things happening Mm -hmm. so yeah I anyway I can't miss a chance to complain about Aristotle being bad at reading tragedy (laughs) (laughs) I mean yeah I mean, if he thinks this one's bad, then I, I don't think I've ever read. I feel like I had to have read some of Poetics in school, but that would have been at least 10 years ago. And it's all lost my left my brain. I make a habit of not reading a lot of philosophers. <laughs> well, and like, the, if I'm being generous, I will say that Aristotle is, and I don't, I don't often feel generous towards Aristotle, <laughs> but I will say that he is, there's good reason to think that he's more talking about lost tragedies that like mm. are a later time period. He's not talking about like our major tragedians. He's talking about people who are writing at his time, so, say, like yeah. his contemporaries mm-hmm. who are, and he's like, oh, like these plays suck. And like, we don't, we don't have these plays. So, I mean, maybe they do. And maybe he's accurately pinpointing these problems with the plays of his time. But a lot of the examples he uses are, are major tragedies that we have. And so it's, I, it doesn't let him entirely off the hook, yeah. but there is there is there are those who would say that it's more about he's not writing a, primarily for us mm-hmm. and thinking about these plays. He's primarily using this as a way to tell tragedians of his time like be better. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Here are the things you're doing that are bad. But yeah, I still I still think he's. But this play people have hated until very recently. Like mm. it's just having this like moment of people realizing. How great it is because for the longest time it didn't fit what people wanted like there was a whole tradition of like the sophoclean hero and what people thought that meant and like what what the sophoclean hero exemplifies um which is i could psychoanalyze so many of these scholars who are like writing about like the you know the heroic temper we have all of these works where it's this very a hero who stands out against his civilization and his society and he's like the lone man who gets it and all society and like you can just see people in like the middle of the 1900s like like they think they are the Sophoclean hero and you can just see them putting themselves into the scholarship in ways that I find to be very because like I, I think that it causes people to misread when you were reading for the Sophoclean hero um you're you have to force ambiguity and complexity and messiness of these plays to fit what you want this type of hero to be. Yeah. And so I think like, but, and this didn't fit that, right? Like this didn't fit that model at all. Like we have, you know, Deianira and then she accidentally kills Heracles and then like we have no resolution. It's just this bleak ending and people didn't think it was appropriately Sophoclean. And there were some people who suggested like, maybe it's forged, like maybe it's not really Sophocles. Maybe it's like inaccurately attributed to him. And it was a long time before it found a home in the more like, no, this is a legit Sophoclean tragedy. And it's a really good one. And we haven't, we haven't given it a fair shake. Yeah. It's so interesting because I think because I'm not in the academic side of it, I don't like, I don't have a good frame of reference on even what that Sophoclean hero would be. Like, is it all around Oedipus? Which I'm like, is he meant to be a hero? <laughs> like- <laughs> well, I mean, that's part of, because like, so, I mean, if you think about like Ajax and his story, you know, that you have like, oh, like Ajax, like this, you know, he's too, he's too good for this world. It's kind of a lot of the vibe that people come at this with, mm-hmm. that like, a man who comes into irreconcile, maybe a woman, I guess, Antigone, ugh, right? Like there's, but it's very much like 
a man who like society doesn't get him and like he he gets it and like society he is coming into conflict with his his society and I guess I mean that's a way to read some of these plays but it it flattens and it takes so much out of it if you're trying to to say that these heroes are all somewhat the same mm-hmm. like Philoctetes or Neoptolemus or whatever like are are they like Oedipus who's like Antigone who's like Ajax like I, I that whole project and like that whole history of of engaging with these plays I think does a disservice to the text which are so much messier like they're so much messier and I I think there was a period in scholarship and it was we could get into a whole like <laughs> you know a certain type of like elite man white man um you know, largely British um, or other like European elites who, yeah, <laughs> uh, who have never been wrong about anything ever. Mm. And <laughs> but you like they are not necessarily looking like they don't want to see all of the the messiness and the complexity mm-hmm. of some of these texts. And part of that is you know like the rational greed. Like we don't want to think about the the more irrational stuff and the more. Um, like there is a thing that we look for in antiquity and and we are reading for that. And it I think there has been, thankfully, I mean, over the last, you know, 50, 75, 100 years, like we've really done a much better job of of seeing the richness of these texts. But yeah, this play, like for so long, people were not they just didn't think it was good. Yeah. And they're so wrong about it's that. So because wrong. It's so good. Yeah. And I, I can see kind of why. I mean, because Dianera is what makes it so good. But she's not like she's not a heroine like many of the other more famous Greek tragedies. She is not Clytemnestra. She's not Medea. And that's what makes her so interesting, but also like makes her, I would say, probably unique in a way that would might annoy people who are looking for a more traditional tragedy of like the woman is bad. Like the, the woman must be bad or she must be antiquity. There is no in between. Right. Like you have to be this kind of like masculine type of hero. Like you have, you know, that there's, she just doesn't fit into any of those. And then our hero, like our, you know, like our Greek hero guy, like, you know, we, I mean, we don't even gesture at the idea that he becomes a god. Like you get to the end Mm. and, you know, in the back of our mind, there's all this like, yeah, I mean, he becomes a god, but we don't see any of that. He is screaming and pain and agony and he's in like the register that men never go in in tragedy. Like he's in this like super like, oh my God, this is very bad kind of meter and like register. He's up, he's up in the very emotional range and we get no resolution. Like we get nothing. There's no solace. There's no consolation. It's just like, wow, this. And then at the end, either the chorus or Hylas, his son, like just says like, and this is Zeus and we, and scene. Like that's, that's, you know, and it doesn't explain, like, it's just like, wow, that's, they just kind of throw it in your face that this is Zeus, Heracles' dad. Like, and we keep getting reminded throughout that this is his dad who is letting all of this happen to him and is looking on, is not doing anything. And we never even get a mention of, oh, and he's definitely like, we're going to go put him on a pyre and he'll become a god now. Like, we don't, we don't talk about that. Mm -hmm. That would give us something to fall on as like. Oh, it's okay then. Nope, he's just screaming and he's on fire. He is burning to death, and and I think we're done here. That's a that is a bleak way to end a play, and and like a play generally. But then also when you take into account, like yeah, it, it's Heracles. Like it, he's 
the hero, like the number yeah. one, the most universal, the most beloved, like he is the guy and he ends on fire and in pain. And that alone is so interesting. And I, you know, love it for all my <laughs> love to hate heroes because I think it's just so much more interesting than all of their, the other stories around them of, or, or it is so much more interesting than the idea that like, yes, Heracles dies, but oh, up he goes into Mount Olympus and he lives with a nice lady named Hebe. And we all just don't even have to think about it. You know, like, meanwhile, I, I found myself, I realized it after I'd already done a couple of episodes, like leading up to this play where I was like, I kept saying that Dianera was his last wife. And I was like, I think I'm just like, gonna just forget apparently that like he does go up and marry a goddess and, like becomes this whole thing uh, but it does feel so different and it's like that's such a way like a clean way of ending his story when it seems so much more interesting and complex and like more indicative of the life he led to have him end on fire you know especially after yeah. this play because they don't make him look very good like it's very much, I mean, you know, you can still see the way the the Heracles of it all in there, but it's so much like Dianera is just trying to have a decent life. Even she's, you know, she's not even trying to have like a great life or like a great marriage. She just wants to not be sad and anxious like all of the time. And even when she finds out about Ioli, she's just like, I mean, it'd be fine if he just like went off and was in love with women elsewhere, but like, just don't bring her into my house. And you're like, oh yeah, my god, like that's in the bare bed minimum. with him. Like, yes, yeah, it's such a like, it's such a low bar that she's yes. asking. And the fact that she so specifically is like, I don't want to be. I mean, I feel like there's such a, a reference to like to the Clytemnestras of the world. Mm. Of like, I don't want to be a Clytemnestra. Like, I don't, you know. I, I, and she, I mean, there's some specific lines where she's, she's like referencing how she doesn't want to be that kind of woman. She wants to protect her marriage. Like she's not trying to kill her no. husband. And I think like the part of the tragedy of it is that she's very specifically trying not to kill her husband and she still ends up killing her husband. Yeah. And she just, yeah. I mean, it's so explicit that all she wants is to just have him love her and not bring another woman into their house. Like not even just only love me it's like love me and also just don't bring another woman into my bed <laughs> like absolute yeah. bare minimum and then and oh yeah it's her naivete or it's just like the fact that she just fully doesn't know what she's doing she just really thinks she's just trying to get something good and like just trying to help her situation and she just has no idea that it's gonna kill him and then even when she does she realizes immediately and like immediately feels bad and it that's so interesting too where it's like there's no anger in her at all it's all just like longing to have a halfway decent life and love yeah and like i don't know how you can't find that to be such a compelling plot yes. like that's i don't know i find the plots that i find the most gripping and like the most tragic are the ones where like everyone's making a decision that you understand every step of the way. Like, you know, there there's no point where you're like, yeah, you, you shouldn't have done that. Like maybe people should have known better about some aspects of like, do I think the centaur blood is probably a good thing? But I think the play does such a beautiful job of looking at how reasonable it is that she thinks all of the things that she thinks. Like she doesn't do anything wrong. She wants to protect her house and her marriage and her family which is fundamentally the thing that women like are allowed to 
act in the, you know, in the sphere of like in tragedy, like the Mm -hmm. house is their place. And so like she's trying to be like to act in the place that she is allowed to act and protect her child and her husband, like her marriage. And that that backfires on Mm -hmm. her. Like that's so I mean, just such like a, a beautifully crafted but really tragic plot. And she's so sympathetic from the very beginning, too. So I think it just immediately introduces that idea of like, this is just a woman not only trying to get by, but yeah, do right by her family and her husband and her house. And she does everything right. You know, even the with the centaur blood, the poisoned robe or, or whatever it ends up being like she made it she made it by hand and with love and okay it happened to be poison but like she didn't know that and she just made it but even the way it opens with like her story uh you know of the river god and everything but also just like her sadness like the play just opens with her sadness in a way that i was not expecting and like really was powerful for me reading it for the first time which i love and hate to do for the podcast because I feel (laughs) totally thrown in but also I think it makes for good episodes and then I get to read the plays yeah and you're I mean you're reacting like authentically (laughs) in the moment as opposed to yeah I feel like some plays that I've read and taught and talked about so much like I my react like I kind of I know how I feel about the play Mm. and you know this is this is the part that I always want to talk about. And I feel like when you're you're engaging with something for the first time, like you're you're feeling the like the rawness of the intensity of those emotions. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. I mean, in some ways, like that's if if we were thinking about these as things that were originally performed, like you're you're getting like your first time watching a movie. Like you're reacting how an audience would react. Like you're like, oh no, Dianera, <gasps> no. Like that's, you know, the twentieth time you read a play, you're like, yeah, this is like you know, maybe I get some clever wordplay I didn't notice before because, oh, that's foreshadowing. I see. But you're not getting that that actual authentic reaction. So mm-hmm. I don't know. I think it's great you're reading yeah. it for the first time I mean, here. It's very fun. And it makes my life easier than having to read it and then write an episode reading it again. So I just do it. Uh, but one thing that really surprised me from like just the Greek mythology of it all is the way that Dianera is so sympathetic to Ioli, like before and after she knows the truth of why she's there. Like she's just kind to her and she's just like, you look really sad. You look particularly sad. Who who are you? Why are you so sad? And then even when she finds out, it's just like, you're really sad. Like that was just <laughs> surprising to me just from Greek mythology as a whole. But also, I don't know. I suppose I'm just so used to going to Euripides for <laughs> nice women <laughs> who don't hate everyone. <laughs> Well, and that's, you know, that she would be justified in being mad at, like, this, I mean, this is the thing that's causing the problem. Mm-hmm. Like, this is, you know, she, like, Ioli is, is the threat to, to her marriage. And the fact that she doesn't take that out on her, I think, and I mean, this is a somewhat anachronistic way to, to think about this, but I very much see, like, the impulse to, like, get mad at the other woman or, you know, as opposed to, I mean, if you're mad at anyone, you're mad at Heracles. Like, yeah. and you're not even mad at Heracles, even though you deserve to be mad at him. But that Ioli didn't choose this. Like, she she had no say in any of this. Mm-hmm. Like, Heracles fell in love or lust or you know whatever. But like, and he did all of this and took her. I mean, this is not. And I think there's something so, I don't know, like aspirational or relatable in an aspirational way that she isn't 
she isn't mad at Iole. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that this is, if anything, this is Heracles' fault. Yeah. That we're not meant to be like, oh, Iole, this homewrecker, which is, is fundamentally not fair. And I think in some ways, like Cassandra and Clytemnestra, we think about like, like Cassandra is perceived as a threat. Like Clytemnestra is not happy that, that this woman is coming home, even though she's enslaved. She has no choice about mm-hmm. it. But in a lot of ways, I think Clytemnestra still thinks of her as a as a threat. Um, and Deanera, in so many different ways, is really explicit about like she doesn't want to be Clytemnestra. <laughs> and you know, and not that there's, I mean, I love Clytemnestra, but that I think the fact that that Deanera is so intentional about like that's not what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. I am not trying to axe my husband when he gets home. I am trying to to do something different. I want to save this marriage. I don't want to destroy him. Yeah. I'm just, I feel like I'm mostly just impressed with Sophocles for actually conveying that so incredibly well, because I find it to be very, I mean, very believable that she fortunately does look and say like, no, this was not Ioli's decision. She does not want to be here, but it's more rare that anyone would actually convey it in an ancient Greek work. I'm like, oh, yeah, well done. Yeah. Like it's a very like yeah, like high five Sophocles. Yeah. Like that is a, a astonishingly enlightened view that you have, you know, and whether or not he's thinking about this in the same terms yeah. we are. Like there is something like really great about that. Yeah. I mean, he certainly had to have been thinking about it enough to get there. So I'm like, hey, you know, well done. Yeah. yeah. Good, good on him. Yeah. <laughs> I don't hate her except, well, not even except, but I don't, I don't hate her really at any moment. There's a couple lines yeah. where you're like, ooh, they're really like tossing around, I guess, there's just some interesting lines about the enslaved people around and like the, the translation says nurse. I never know what to really describe that as a person, but she, you know, has this great idea and, and Diana is like, Oh, you had a really good idea. Even though you're enslaved, how lucky you're, you can be smart too. And I was like, Okay, I don't think that needed yeah. to be said. Un- unnecessary. <laughs> yeah. Didn't need that. Could comment. Have said nothing at all. That would have been just <laughs> fine. <laughs> With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals. It's not about being the best in the world. It's about doing what's best for the world. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview Great Falls offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. 
enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbiotica is your solution to great-tasting all-natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant-based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or artificial nonsense. It's just pure goodness in every pouch. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit Symbiotica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to Symbiotica.com. That's C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A dot com. Yeah, such a backhanded compliment. Yeah. Like, oh, you're smarter than you look. Like, okay, rude. Yeah. <laughs> Unnecessary. Just just say a good idea. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, it was just I don't even know. The whole thing is just so so interesting. Greek tragedy is always so it just always so eye-opening to me the way that they're able to tell these stories but in such interesting ways, the way that we often don't have other versions to look at like other versions of the myth and so we have all these questions over like what is purely from the myth backstory that Sophocles is working off of and like what did he invent I think this is a good example of that like we have the idea of what happens but even as I'm thinking about it, like we don't have a lot pre-Sophocles of what happens we have a lot after yeah, like a lot of this is his, or as far as we can tell, like mm-hmm. a lot of this is his own interventions as opposed to, you know, some stories are like they're they're out there. There's versions out there. Um, but yeah, this is one that like we don't have, we don't have that many like particularly specific details. Like a lot mm-hmm. of this is Sophocles' own thing. Yeah, which is always one of the things I think about too as soon as I start a tragedy of like, what does the audience already know going in and then how does that affect the play? And so I'm kind of curious in this case, like how much of, of Dianera like causing the death, but then also Heracles's death generally, like I'm curious how much of that did exist before, like, or how much did end up surprising the audience. And I imagine there isn't a good answer for that, but it's interesting. Yeah. I mean, I think for a lot of it and, to be fair, I also I often tend to be on the side of like we shouldn't assume people, you know, even though like mm. some of the versions that we have out there about this and that, I tend to a lot of times be on the side of like, well, you, you don't know. I mean, there's there's versions out there, and we don't know what we've lost, and we don't know what the most common version was. So I tend to be a little bit more agnostic about some of those things. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think people people are assuming this story ends with apotheosis, mm, right? Um, and so I think that is one of the places where the fact that that's so specifically not included, like it has to be an intentional choice because mm-hmm. I think this story naturally ends with apotheosis and, and that's not what we get here. Yeah. I mean, I thought it did. I thought it ended with apotheosis because of course it's Heracles, like hands up a God. Yeah. We all know that's that. what happens. Yeah. It reminds me of um, the end of, of Iphigenia at Aulis which to me does feel so like tacked on because we get this like weird deus ex machina that's like look she's fine and it's all good and it's like (laughs) it it, i'm I'm sort of i prefer when plays don't have that which is why 
I love things like Medea and Bacchae and now this because it's so much more enjoyable and maybe it's just my personality or what, but like I much prefer to just have this straight up horrific tragedy to end on. And this yeah, one too. you sit with it. Like yeah. you just you have to sit with it. And and it's it's ugly and it's it hurts and it's like and and that is a part of like and you did it with everybody else. Like you did this with all your friends and you went through this thing that was like really sad and then you're just gonna kind of sit there and and be like oh okay that 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 just happened and you know then I mean you talk about it or you work through it or you whatever but like I yeah I really like when plays end you know like Oedipus at Colonus is like it's fine but it's sort of a you know it's a kind of a happily ever after like he probably becomes a god or whatever like we don't know for sure but like it's this very resolution to a story as opposed to like no it is bad like I just found out horrible things about who I am and I blinded myself and my wife slash mom is dead and oh god what are we gonna do now and like and I'm not giving you anything that makes it better we just you know and scene yeah yeah that one's so much more preferable to me (laughs) and like yeah this one too it's like it's not only tragedy it's not only sad it's also horrifying in a way that not a ton of Greek tragedies have. Like they all have the sad. They do that pretty well. Obviously some better than others, but like the description of Heracles from the moment he puts on the clothing is like hardcore. It is so much to take in. And I haven't even gotten to like him being on stage yet in my reading of it and I'm still like holy shit so (laughs) I just can't even imagine you know the more of it what what is the rest to come but also like watching that and hearing about not only not just anybody experiencing that kind of pain and like it's also just gross like it's gory it's nasty it's horrifying And not like to think of anyone experiencing that, but then also Heracles, like this guy that does everything that you think of as the man who can do everything, who has, who's traveled the whole of the Greek world, like just the most universal of heroes. And it's like, this is his end fully by accident, like so unintentional and horrifying. Well, and it's such a like, I I kind of love when heroes get like spectacularly unheroic deaths like Jason like doesn't Medea doesn't kill him like at least that would be I feel like in some way that's a better ending for him Mm -hmm. than she took everything from you and now you're just a dude who like you don't have Medea so what I mean can't accomplish that much and you're gonna die when your boat falls on your head like a piece of rotting wood from your boat is gonna fall on your head like way to take any like heroic oomph out of that guy's story and it's I feel like you get kind of the the same like he's Heracles and he's gonna die from an accident a misinterpretation like that is there in some way like it's just so chef's kiss of like I love it like it's the least it's such an unheroic death for someone and one of um someone I went to grad school with Catherine Liu she wrote her dissertation on Heracles and one of the things that she like saw in his story is about how he like the violence that he does to monsters and things like that external facing violence like it's the story of like 
that is really destructive in domestic sphere, right? And like that, and I, that's something that ever since she told me, like, I, I want to make sure she gets credit because it is like so informed the way I read a lot of different things about like Odysseus or something, right? With mm-hmm. it, like the skills that keep you safe at war and that make you good at heroing out there are are so out of place in at home. And the fact that like Heracles kills all these monsters and then is is brought down by like this constant like domestic strife that you know he kills his his first wife and children and his wife kills him and they that that's sort of the cost of this like type of hero that we built like like goes and kills monsters to make the world safe like you can't you can't turn that off Mm -hmm. like there is if if you are like a violent monster slayer like you can't come home and leave all your your violence outside and that it's it's inevitably going to have consequences like domestically. And I think I think you see that so much in this play that someone who is out there having and who in a lot of ways like is the pinnacle of masculinity, but also we get a lot of these stories where he's sort of gender bending and cross-dressing and there's a kind of fluidity that um that we see in his character and like that his death comes in this kind of gender, you know, that it, he and Hera have always been at it mm-hmm. and that, you know, relationship with his wife and that this, that it, it is around women that his death comes about. Like, I, I feel like that is in some ways kind of poetically just as well, that mm-hmm. his story is so much this like masculine killing monsters, doing hero stuff. And, and it feels like there's this oversight about, about women and about home and, and that that's what keeps getting him is these, these kind of, like interpersonal domestic family things are are what keep bringing him down when he's like doing such amazing things in these other parts of his life. Yeah. And just even the way you phrase it made me think too, like it's almost, it's a little bit full circle too. you know, he kills his wife and children in a mad rage. And then when he marries another one, she ends up killing him not in a mad rage like truly just accidentally like we don't even have that same kind of explanation that he gets from from his other family and yeah that's i mean it's so true and i think this is what makes greek mythology and greek tragedy so much more complex than the most of the certainly like the popular like adaptations and reception of it like it's just so much more cut and dry in versions now. And granted, I have not seen the Hercules with the rock, which I really need to. Can you please watch it I and know. then we can talk about yeah. it, please? Okay. Can we be movie discussion buddies? Because it is my favorite. <laughs> I, I love it so much. Say, you definitely told me to watch it the last time we talked. So yes, absolutely. I will watch it and you can come on and we'll just talk about it. Excellent. I'm always so when people are like, do you want to watch, like discuss a movie with me? I'm like, yeah. Please let me like the movies we dig podcast. They're like, you know, here's all the movies we can talk about. I'm like, what about Rockules? I want to talk about Rockules. And like somebody already talked. I'm like, oh, that's that's the one movie I have really strong opinions about. I'm not like a film person. I don't have classy, <laughs> like sophisticated opinions about movies. I'm like, oh, big explosions. Things go boom. Like that's that's my like I love Fast and the Furious. That's my that's my lane of movies. And I just really I I want to talk about the the Rock Hercules movie because it is oh let's let's do this again after please. you've seen it please yeah. I would I, I could talk about that movie forever not I, just for like dumb explosion reasons but like a, as what it's doing in the realm of like thinking about what mythology does I, oh, 
God, it's so good. That's it's so good. I keep hearing good things, so I need to just sit down and do it. I think the problem was as soon as I decided that, it was off streaming services here. So I'm just okay. going to pay some money and I'll watch it and I'm fine with that. Okay. <laughs> then, then we can discuss it. Yeah. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals. It's not about being the best in the world. It's about doing what's best for the world. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview, Great Falls, offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbiotica is your solution to great-tasting all-natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant-based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or artificial nonsense. It's just pure goodness in every pouch. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit Symbiotica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to Symbiotica.com. That's C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A.com. Well, completely aside from that movie, my thoughts on the connection or like the sort of the way that they movies about mythology just tend to do the opposite of this. Like they don't make they make heroism what we think of it now like these just these great men going off and killing monsters and saving the day and coming home and living happily ever after with these pretty ladies but meanwhile like that isn't realistic like the realism is that a guy like heracles could not live a normal life like he just couldn't and even i I told in the way i sort of it was hard to decide how to tell the lead up to their story before the play because I wanted to get in the backstory but also like so many different versions kind of have it told differently or or they just don't give you a timeline because it's Greek mythology and no one likes a timeline right. <laughs> so I basically told the like Ioli origin aside from like the version that are not in the play beforehand um, but what really stuck out to me was like I think it was mostly Apollodorus because I think he's kind of one of the only like full sources of it um and of course he's so brief somebody once called him the tldr of mythology and i think about that all the time (laughs) so true um but he describes it as like that heracles you know went and he tried to win this or he did win this archery contest against ioli's father and and her brothers and that was supposed to mean that he got to marry her and her father was like no you killed your last wife and children like you can't which like fair dad yes reasonable point (laughs) exactly and that just felt so real of like yeah like 
Heracles is not the guy you want marrying your daughter. Like, even in ancient Greece, where it was kind of like, well, how much did we care what the women ended up doing? Like, no, no, even that, it's like, nah, he, we all know he killed his wife and children. And, like, he's been atoning for it all these years. And, like, that doesn't mean that he just suddenly gets to, you know, marry anyone he wants. And it's just so interesting the way that, like, that is just so real and how you would think of a human in real life. Whereas, yeah, in the, in, all the versions of, I mean, obviously Disney's Hercules is like something else entirely. I love it desperately. It does not show much of like the sort of the real darkness involved as a cartoon. Yeah, with it's, Danny it's doing something different. It's not exactly. trying to, to do the Greek thing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But then like, you know, say Clash of the Titans, which is also not good. But like it is a better example of like what we think of, of what heroes do. But even still, you know, people get a happy ending. But it's like, honestly, yeah. I mean, the PTSD alone, like you deal with stuff like that you're kind of you know you're a changed human and and this is such a great example of of yeah heracles not not being able to do regular person things and then dying from it which is all where i started talking about this but it's just so interesting like it's just so real i love greek tragedy so much i think about it every time i get into it and then it's like i forget for another few months when i'm out and then i'm like man it's all just so good and like it's just so great (laughs) Yeah, it was so hard. I was assigning some plays to my students this semester and like trying to like pick just a few. And I'm like, how can I not do this one? Because then like, like this class is supposed to talk about so many things that aren't just Greek tragedies. But Mm. I'm like, but you know, we can, if we look at this, then we got to look at this play because, you know, they pair so well together. Then we also got to look at this story over here. And oh, it's so hard. It's so hard to just pick like, just like two plays that we're going to read. I can't imagine having to pick and like, and decide which ones that people learn because there are just so many and there's so many they're fascinating for so many different reasons what did you pick (laughs) yeah so well this is this is a um sex and gender in the ancient world class Mm. and so we looked at um medea and agamemnon Mm. but it's killing me that we didn't because you know there's so much like i'm trying to do like sexuality and and also thinking about gender and I we're going to be looking at Lysistrata and like is this a feminist rallying cry thing or like is that not really like is it weird that we keep talking about this as like the feminist dream play and um and so then it's killing me that we didn't do humanities because mm-hmm. it's so you know, we've had, I mean, Athena comes up so much and um you know, people had questions about like how come she does stuff that isn't like you know, women like don't really do war and how come she's the goddess of war? I'm like, I, okay, I have to like, I got to come back to the humanities again because I got to talk about how like Athena is this like mean girl and she doesn't, you know, she always is going to side with the man because she doesn't have a a mom and like, you know, so it's, I mean, thinking about goddesses, but you know, I wanted to read the Homeric Hymn to Demeter and it's not like we haven't read a lot of mythology, but you know, we did some Homer and we did Homeric Hymn and then we did uh, Medea and Agamemnon and you know then we're also trying to talk about like real life women and you know looking at historical sources and looking at so and we talked about monsters and monsters that are coded female and oh, it's it's so it was so hard to to settle on just like a handful of things yeah because you could you could talk a, you could do a class about like sex and gender that's entirely just looking at tragedies as as long as you don't care about the parts of life that are not represented accurately in tragedies which is a lot of it but um, yeah, it's, it was, it was really hard. Yeah. I bet. Can I, I don't mean to, yeah. I don't mean to totally derail this, but can I go on like a tiny little rabbit hole of a thing that I think is so cool about this play? Please. There's a chapter, I wrote, I wrote a whole chapter in my dissertation. Like this was my road into this play. Um, and I like, 
I love it a lot. And I just want to like point out how cool this is because it, it plays into a lot of this other stuff, but it's like a very nitty gritty, like linguistic-y, like close reading of some of the text. And um, so one of the, basically my my dissertation was about how gods speak in so like oracles and things and like mm. how, because in Sophocles, like one of, you know, as much as you can't like the Sophoclean hero, this and that, the thing that like is pretty, is in fact like seven for seven across Sophocles is the divine tries to communicate and people screw it up terribly. Like people just <laughs> whew, swing and a miss. Mm-hmm. And, or they think, you know, they think they understand it and they don't, or they understand it and they try and avert it and they can't. But like miscommunications with the divine is like, that is, that is a thing that Sophocles seems very concerned with. And so one of, like, this was the first play I started working on because I, I tried to write about Euripides and my advisor was like, the questions you want to ask are not Euripides questions. Like, I think they're actually Sophocles questions. So she's like, you know, look at some of these. And so I was looking at this a lot from the perspective of, like, why do these miscommunications happen so much? Like, you know, in Oedipus, we have, like, kill your father and sleep with your mother and how that works out. And so one of the things that I think is really actually like a real driving force throughout this play is that we have this prophecy that either like, and we have like a, there's a timeline, like a, like a countdown time of mm-hmm. sorts. And like at this moment, um, and we get, we get this, like there's sort of five different versions of a prophecy about Heracles um, that he got from Zeus, which is weird to get it from Zeus and not Apollo in the first place. Yeah. Um, and it's kind of, I mean, it kind of highlights like what a, dick move it is that like Zeus it like he goes he gets it from Zeus at Dodona which is one of the I mean it's you know usually it's Apollo and yeah. Apollo is like famously tricky and we can't tell what he means and he's you know it's Heracles dad that gave this like imprecise and confusing prophecy that that sets all I think this like really does kind of drive drive the plot along in a way that like so at this moment, like, and, and Daenerys says it, and we get it from the chorus, and she even mentions, like, she wrote it down. Like, <laughs> we get this mention, like, you know, this this was written down. Um, and that at the present moment, either um, Heracles would die or he would have a rest from his, his labors, mm. right? And so you get this, and I think that a lot of her actions are sort of motivated by the fact that as one reasonably would – you think like it's A or B. Okay, well, he's not dead. He's coming home. So he's going to have a rest from his toils. So he's going to be home finally. And like it it matters that I protect my house because he's going to be here. Like if he's off doing whatever, not my problem, but he's done with his toils. And so I think like she very reasonably interprets this as saying like it's either this or this, but not both. Mm-hmm. Um, And it turns out as Heracles and like people people mention this later like oh the only rest from toils is death it it wasn't an either or it was actually like a it was a both Mm -hmm. and the fact that like this extremely plausible misinterpretation like it's it's the natural way to read it um that I think that makes her that that drives some of her actions because she's not worried about him dying so maybe she would think harder about this weird centaur blood if she didn't think that he was safe, but he isn't dead. So she doesn't like that. It's the other option. And this mm-hmm. kind of thinking about like how how that either or works in a way that is kind of misleading. Right. And it's kind of and you could say like, are the gods is Zeus just being mean? Like, is he trying to set this up as a riddle of some sort? Um, But you have exactly the same kind of like misinterpretation 
and I think we see a similar like I think Sophocles is really interested in how language works as part of my like my dissertation was on this but because Oedipus we get a similar right that Mm -hmm. he can't solve like the riddly type prophecy that he gets and he's the guy that famously solves riddles like (laughs) that's his thing and that he can't solve the riddle Um, and so I think like Sophocles is really interested in how how communication and miscommunication works like how language works and this is a time like the sophists are in Athens like We've got like how language works is a really it's stressing a lot of people in Athens out that you can teach people to make bad arguments sound good. Like people can be deceptive with words. And how does language like how does communication even work? And but it's with the story about Nessus and the cent like the centaur, you get like an exact little microcosm of the thing that that is happening in the play as a whole that we think we think Sophocles is, or we think Heracles is safe. Um, because we think he's at rest to his toils, which isn't the same as death until we find out they are. Um, and Nessus is like, this will make sure that he will never love any woman more than you. Which, again, like the natural way to interpret that is like, oh, he'll love me. He'll love me the most as opposed to like, no, he'll never love anyone but you because he's dead. He can't love anyone because he's dead. And like that's, like there's the same kind of like there are riddles that she doesn't realize are riddles. And the fact that like I, I think that that is this like little kind of subtle trope that runs through here. But I think, you know, and you contrast that with um, Lycus, the messenger, mm-hmm. is is just straight up lying. Right. And like that's a different like he's lying for motivations. There's language that we misunderstand for very reasonable. Like no one thinks they and are screwed up. Like it makes sense that mm-hmm. you would you know you would think that this means that because that's the most obvious interpretation and so i think it's this kind of really subtle thing about this play but it it's really cool in the way that i think sophocles is really interested in how like how people make meaning when i say something how do you decide how to interpret it you know are you going to interpret it maliciously are you going to interpret it at face value are you going to like think about it and be like hmm this feels like a riddle maybe i should figure out if i know what's going on here and that the fact that people don't don't think harder about that they just take things at face value is kind of if we want to talk about there being some like tragic flaw like you know that people always come back to this like oh the tragic like in Sophocles people's mistake that they make most of the time is thinking that they understand something that they don't understand and like that's a God, like, that's so relatable. Like, I'm never going to have to worry about, you know, sleeping with my mom and killing my dad. But God, the fact that like the idea that I could walk myself into a terrible situation because I thought I I thought I knew what was going on and I don't like, oh, and, you know, and you see this in all of his plays in different ways that I think he's kind of obsessed with the way that that language works mm-hmm. um, at this time when everyone is thinking about how rhetoric and language and persuasion are are operating. Like, I think so I just that's one of the things that I love about this play is that you get these like little like riddles or like tricksy phrasing um, that like the gods never technically lie, but they sure do make you, you know, make you like you you misinterpret them a lot um, because you are you are operating in the way that we all do without thinking about it. And I think his plays force you to think about that aspect while also doing all of these other like pulling your heartstrings and like oh Deonera and you don't hate Iola you could hate her but you don't and like it does I think this play works on so many really interesting different levels so I just I I can't I can't talk about this play without talking about how like this prophecy is such a like a cool thing that operates as throughout this as it's going along no thank you for bringing it up I did I I mean 
I feel like I didn't harp enough on the on the prophecy. Now I'm going to look at my my script for it, but because the centaur thing, like the Nessus's line, to me is so like obvious, but not obvious. Like it's obvious because we know. But yeah, if you're if you're in Diana's position, it's not obvious that like yeah, you're the last person he's ever going to love because he's going to be dead. The Oracle in Oedipus is one of my favorite things, and I you know kind of inadvertently introduced way too many listeners to the idea that like you literally can never trust the oracle and it's fairly because of like Oedipus <laughs> and I'm like so like that's not totally true I'm sorry it, it's it's to the point where and it's adorable and hilarious but like I will post a picture of Delphi and people will be like what, what did you do you went and you went to the oracle and like every time <laughs> and I'm like okay like it's fine like the real oracle they kind of did trust it's just like in Sophocles I guess primarily which is such a well, like okay so here's the thing that I'm like and not everyone agrees with me on this but that disclosure aside so I think like because they do trust the and mm-hmm. and most questions that you actually gave to the actual oracle at Delphi were like simple yes or no questions mm-hmm. and yet in Sophocles and Herodotus who happen like we know that they were we you know we have accounts that they're friends I think this is a thing that they're talking about. Like, I think, like, we see this as a literary trope that shows up in both of them, but not really before that. Mm-hmm. And I think this is, like, a Sophocles, Herodotus, at the time when everyone is starting to, like, kind of freak out about where, like, because, like, oracles never lie to you, right? Like, they never lie, but they are they are misleading in mm-hmm. a way that, like, technically true, but never what you would think it would mean. Um, and I think, like, I think that that is such a, like, a thing of that moment when, like, both these guys are hanging out in Athens and allegedly they're like, hanging out with each other. Like, I just, I realize, like, this, I can't ever prove any of this. But I like to think that they're, like, hanging out, drinking wine, being like, dude, have you ever noticed, like, how words are so weird? And, like, having this, because it's, you see it all the time, like, in, like, Herodotus has these, you know, if you attack, a great empire will fall. And then comes back and he was like, but you said I would win. He's like, did I say you would win? (laughs) I said an empire would fall. Did your empire not fall? And he's like, ah, darn it, you got me, Delphi. (laughs) Like, and so I, yeah, that, like. But again, like, people react in the way that you absolutely would. Like, someone tells you you're going to kill your dad and sleep with your mom. You get as far away from who you think are your mom and dad as possible. Like, yeah, you didn't have all the information you, you know, who you think mom is is wrong. Like, you have a fundamental mistake under there. But that's the most reasonable thing to do is get so far away from mom and dad that this could never happen. Mm -hmm. And so, and again, like, I think another thing we see in how these miscommunications happen People are like the way that emotional investment, like that people hear what they want to hear or they they don't think more about it because they are angry or sad or whatever, afraid. Right. And like, yes, technically, you know, as as Delphi um, in Herodotus, as though like you should have asked a follow up question and Chris is like, oh, no, you're totally right. And. But like, um, I mean, imagine someone hearing the prophecy that that Oedipus gets and being mm-hmm. like, okay, but who are my mom <laughs> yeah. and dad? Like, no one would do that. No one would do that. You are going to like have your breath taken away and be like, no, that can't be true. No way. And then you're just going to book it. Like, you're just going to get out of town. And so I feel like it's this, like, we get the ways that like on a language, like on a word level, you can misunderstand things, but also how 
the way that you feel about things fundamentally shapes the way that you you receive things. Like, like someone tells you something and you're mad at them, so you're not going to believe them. Or, you know, like when Tiresias tries to tell people things mm. and like Oedipus is mad at Tiresias because he thinks that Tiresias is plotting. So, of course, he's going to be like, you know what? Screw you, buddy. Like, absolutely. I No, no, you're wrong and you're plotting and I hate you and I don't have to listen to anything you say. And like outside the play, we're all like, oh, Tiresias is always right. But someone in that situation where, you know, you're doing all this stuff and you think people are plot, like you are in a very plausible state to not hear what someone is saying, even if they're trying to tell you the truth. And so I think, you know, if you want to talk about there being like a Sophoclean thing, it's not some weird idea of what the hero is. It's like, it's that people react in exactly the way you expect they would. Mm -hmm. And it destroys them. Like people doing exactly the normal thing to do in that situation. And it destroys you. Like, oh, yeah. And it's so much more tragic that way, right? Like that's so much more of a human tragedy of just behaving in a human way. But also, I think in the case of, of Oedipus and and this one, like it's that they all, I mean, they behave, they definitely react in the most common way, the most natural human reaction to these kinds of oracles. But then on top of that too, like in order for, for either of them, you know, either of the the prophecies to be taken, like, accurately to have avoided this, the person listening would have had to just go to the worst case scenario immediately. Like, that, that would be the only way. You know, like, sure, Dianera could have understood this oracle from Dodona. It, it, like, she could have understood it accurately, but she would have had to have been, like, a nihilist. Like, she would have had to just been, like, my life is shit, so this must be shit. This must be the absolute yeah. shittiest And the gods, the gods are being dicks, like, yeah. for no reason. And, like, yeah, in a way that if that's not the answer, you look like an absolute, like, paranoid, like, you, you look, you know, you look like you're a conspiracy theorist yeah. about, like, no, but maybe the word that said this wasn't really that. And, like, you look like you're connecting, like, red yarn yes yeah it's it's that meme exactly it's like yeah but but then like that's you know i mean you only sound paranoid if you're wrong yeah (laughs) you know (laughs) and yeah so i feel like that there's like such this cool like sub like just under the surface about like all of all of this kind of stuff and then at the end like the person who gives this prophecy and the play like lest we forget the last lines are there is nothing here that isn't zeus Mm. and like we cannot forget like Zeus set this in like why like are Mm -hmm. the gods just monsters like I mean maybe like but you know what are we (laughs) what are we supposed to make of that that at the end of all of he's on fire and you know we've it's every everything is terrible like the worst possible outcome of everything has happened here Hylas is supposed to marry Eoli that's a super weird like son could you marry my would have been like slave slash wife like and also i i'm gonna go die or or not who knows really but probably gonna go die now and then hylas like i i like to read the the manuscripts aren't sure if like it's a chorus or hylas at the end who's Mm. saying the last lines but somebody ends with yep that's all zeus like it like forces you to just stare at like the bleak nihilism of this like what kind of zeus would do this to his son, like not even just to a random hero, no, to his, his son. son. Yeah. And his like most famous son, you know, yeah. like his the most, most heroic hero. Yeah. Like, 
Oh, yeah. That just reminds me, too, because the the first lines of the play really struck me also, which are just like Diana saying that, you know, they say you can never tell if your life has been good or bad until it ends in death. And like that is also just so indicative of like the whole of the play, but also just the very end, like another it's kind of another full circle moment of that just to stray a tiny bit that you just reminded me of a question I had, which I realized I can ask you. Um, the the name of Hylos versus the name of Heracles' boyfriend, Hylos, is there, what is the connection there in terms of like the Greek? Is it? That is, so I'm, there's, spe- I think, I think the spelled- vowels are the same. Let me just okay. double, let me double check with yeah. the spelling. Because in English because they, they have an A versus an O, but I don't know about the Greek. I didn't look. Yeah. So, um, so let me just, um, so I'm going to double check what the Greek for both of these is. Um, okay. So they are, um, so there's, they're slightly different. Um, so it's like, Upsilon, Lambda, Lambda, Omicron, Sigma. Um, so it's where we get for for Heracles' son mm-hmm. um, is usually spelled. So there's there's like two L's in it. Yeah. Um, as opposed to Upsilon, Lambda, Alpha, Sigma. Right. Um, so yeah. they are different. But I mean, by most of our reconstructions of what, like, they're they're not so different. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I think the, like, I think, I think people must have I don't I don't know offhand of any stories that say that like Heracles named his son mm-hmm. after Hylas. It just feels so likely. It feels so possible, you know. Yeah. I mean it seems like and especially given how much you know, going back to like Helen's name being and like people punning on like Deanera mm-hmm. and this and that, like Greeks in ways that constantly amaze me. I I don't have to write a book, but if I did, I would I would want to write a book about the weird insistence on like wordplay at times that it feels so inappropriate for puns <laughs> like, I am just low-key obsessed with how you know you get this in the Bacchae about like Pentheus and Pentha like that the word for like grief and suffering and like you know man you're sure suited to your name and like this is a weird time like you're threatening him and it just seems like a weird time to be like Pentheus do you get it do you get what I did there Pentheus because your name like that's not that's not very threatening like you're just goofy and, you know, you get like, you know, Dayanera or like Helen, but you mm-hmm. get a lot of these places where, especially in tragedies, where things are always going terribly. And you you get these kind of people like thinking about like, ah, because the word. Mm-hmm. And so I I don't know of anyone who, but it would be like, that's very much the kind of thing that someone like obscure Alexandrian or like some like Byzantine scholar would be out there being like, well, Actually, I've done some research on this, and I'm pretty sure that those are connected. But I don't know of any attestations of that. But I will, mm-hmm. I will check and get back to you please, um, because please. it is a very good question. And a, I mean, yeah, it's it's a little weird. Yeah, a lot of a coincidence, you know. It, yeah, it is like mm, that feels a stretch. I had to explain it in the episode because, of course, all of it, all it is is like vocal. So I'm right. like, I'm not saying Hylos here. I'm saying <laughs> Hylos, but also they're spelled very similarly. Because in the works I've had, like the the English transliteration is exactly the same. It's like okay. H-Y-L-A-S or H-Y-L-L-O-S. You're like, mm, like that's, yeah. yeah. That so is, like, my my instinct is that I would pronounce those exactly the same. Exactly. Like, <laughs> you know, there are, I mean, sure, like, look at the accent and the vowel. Like, yeah. But I mean, at the same, like, they're so 
they are so similar mm-hmm. that I have to. Yeah. Now I know I'm going to go. I can add this to my list of of weird, <laughs> weird wordplay that yeah. I find deeply out of place and and strange. The more you look at it, yeah, it's just so interesting. Just because, like, I mean, Hylas is definitely Heracles's most kind of famous boyfriend but also the one that like died a tragic death that wasn't his fault which is pretty rare for men with young boyfriends in greek mythology generally like well and anyone close to heracles yes dying from not his fault is also like strange (laughs) (laughs) oh my god just reminds me of the i mean in both in sophocles and in the myth surrounding it like the way that iphitus dies is Mm. like how are you like this, Heracles? Like, I know. in Sophocles, it's like he kicked him off a cliff. And in the rest of the myths, it's like he threw him against a wall. <laughs> You're like, okay, well, both are great. You seem like a cool guy. Heracles. You seem super well adjusted. Yeah. Love this for you. Totally. But true. like, I feel like it is like, I feel like so much of it comes from that. Like, you can't like, that's the cost of, of having, you know, of, of being someone who can like, do all of this violence mm-hmm. and you know that like sometimes the violence comes out when it's not supposed to like it comes out at times when it's not appropriate and and I think that is like that is part of the cost of like if you are like if you are a weapon of a person mm-hmm. like sometimes that weapon like there's going to be people who get hurt that aren't aren't supposed to be like it's not you know he's not a monster mm-hmm. like heroes are supposed to kill monsters and um and and you fundamentally are like misdirecting that. And I that's one of the things I think is so cool about tragedy, especially that you see like you really see kind of the cost of of heroes, like the cost of heroism that, you know, Ajax and his honor, like he takes his own life. And then we spend the second half of the play seeing what that did to his like wife and child. Mm. Um, like you you have to you see the cost of like, oh, so these heroic heroes seem cool to you, huh? Well, <laughs> Like, let me let let me show you what that actually looks like when we start thinking about, like, what happens after the the hero adventure ends and he has to like he goes home or he goes, you know, he's like, what happens after the the like happily ever after he got the thing he was supposed to go and he did his hero thing. And like, you know, I mean, you can think of it with like Jason and the Argonauts stories, which like that the kinds of things that that were fine when you're out questing like, oh, you're you are seducing a woman to or like charming a woman into helping you out like well try that at home like you're you're going to you're going to try and charm like you're going to you're trying to marry a princess to to upgrade in life like that that works when you're out there that doesn't work when you're when you're in here mm-hmm. and i think like you see so many different variations of you know you don't get to kill all the suitors like you're the king you can't kill all the suitors you absolute maniac like you can't do that mm-hmm. and and it's not even like us as modern people saying that. It's like inside the story, like we get to see the suitors in the underworld being like, that was weird. What happened? Why? <laughs> why did that happen? And like the whole town is mad. Like Athena has to come and be like, guys, be cool because it's so clearly out of line. Like no one's like, oh, no, that's fair. They deserve that. No one says that. Yeah. Inside the story itself, we get all of the people being like, no, you can't. You can't do that. And so, yeah, I think, like, tragedy especially does such a good job of, like, taking the the stories that we sometimes – and if we look at closely at Homer, I mean, I think he problematizes a lot of this stuff as well. But these stories that we might uncritically think are, like, 
so cool and like, oh, what a hero. And then when we think about the implications of that and what it like what the cost to family and self and whatever, like what all the costs of of heroism is like maybe society needs Heracles like those monsters were eating people like maybe maybe we do need a Heracles, but there is a real cost to it. Like we have, we should at least think about the trade-off there. Like we should think about the trade-off of like the trauma of young men going to war. Like mm. we should think about the cost of, I don't know, you know, any of these number of different things that like when you, when you pit a person against society, like their family, their obligations to family and society, like it doesn't end well. Like there is a cost to, to any of these decisions that we make. And like, we need to look at like with, you know, with our open eyes, like we need to look dead at like all of the the costs that are associated with these things that we think are important. And I think tragedy, again, like not just tragedy, and I hate to be like a tragedy exceptionalist, but tragedy and a lot of what I love about tragedy is that it it shows you what the maybe unintended consequences or the costs of these things are. And I think, and then it just leaves you to sit with it. Like mm-hmm. it just ends like, yep, that sucks, doesn't it? Well, you and all of your fellow citizens, I guess, walk out of here and go talk about what you think we should do about this because the play's not going to give you any answers. The mm-hmm. play's just going to tell you that, like, man, this is a shitty situation, isn't it? I think that is what makes tragedy so unique because it can do that so much, like, with so much more detail and first person of it all, you know, compared to to Homer or the myths or whatever, right? Like, it it, it does have, like, a unique viewpoint into all of this because you get it from the person's voice or you get to just see it happening or hear about it happening more like you know rarely do we get the violence anywhere on stage but you you hear about it from these voices and so and it it, yeah I, I mean I can see what you mean though about it being it is it is different from the way that they might make the same a similar points in other works but tragedy does it in this like much more sort of powerful and visceral way but just because of the format and because of the way they can like add so much more detail to the story too because of it's just dialogue or people get their own monologues and you get to hear from the chorus and all these different reasons. Well, and I think the fact that you also like the fact that the action is off stage mm-hmm. that you are experiencing it the same way the characters are experiencing like horrible thing that happened, like a messenger is coming in and telling you about it. And like you as the audience are experiencing that tragedy the same way that, that their main characters are and then you can't help but like you are in a similar position to them thinking about how am I reacting? How would I react in that situation? That it it puts you in there as a as a part of of this conversation as opposed to me saying like, well, it's important to understand that, you know, like I'm I'm not preaching at somebody, mm-hmm. um, but I'm like you are a part of that story. And then you have to like grapple with like, but I think Heracles is important. Like we need it. We need Heracles. Like you can't have hydras roaming around the countryside. Like that's a problem. But also like this is really bad. And how do we like, I don't know what the answer is, but, and I think part of like that you, you grapple with that more or less in silence, like you're watching a play and then you, but you're doing this with all of the citizens. And I think there's something really important in terms of sort of civic discourse about we all went through this like really rock in a hard place kind of situation of like, well, we can't not have this, but we can't not have that. And they can't coexist. Like, uh, how do like what what would have been the right answer in this situation? Mm-hmm. And then then you and all your citizens go out and and talk about this together. And I think that that is an important part that sometimes get lost when we read them on paper that like 
all you know or the the vast majority of of people in the city are are experiencing these plays and people from other cities and and that it is a place where people can grapple with some of these questions a little bit removed right a, a step or two like it's not their own life we're not saying like what should we do about the Peloponnesian war but we are thinking about what the cost to you know the cost of violence like the cost of you know, I mean, a ton of these plays were performed during the Peloponnesian War that we're thinking about, like, what what is the cost of, you know, military violence? And what is that costing us at home? And what is that costing us as a people and our empire and our whatever? Like, that it gives you this invitation and this kind of inroad to thinking about these important questions. And you're coming from a place of, like, how do they viscerally react to seeing this this situation that is kind of like important questions that I'm thinking about as a citizen. Mm -hmm. So I think there's something like really fundamentally important about that. Mm -hmm. It's like when you walk away from a movie or a play and you just have to discuss it with somebody. Yeah. Too, right? The first you, thing like you walk out, like, what'd you think? Yeah. And you just have to sort of decompress or, or that's not the right word, but you know, yeah, just, just talk about it afterwards. Oh, it's so beautiful and fascinating. This was so wonderful. Yeah, thank you so much. Uh, and I we will we will chat more in the future. I have yeah. like so many more things we could chat about. But um thank you so much. My hottest takes about things can be found on Twitter. I'm <laughs> at Apistone on Twitter. And other than that, I I mostly just teaching and thinking about tragedy these days. So um if you're in the Pacific Northwest, we're doing a production of the Medea this uh, this spring. So if, wow. for anyone that's in the Pacific Northwest, come uh, end of April, come come visit, and um, I'll send you I'll send you the info. Yeah, so yeah, come on. Yeah, I, I have a guest room. You are welcome to come stay, and we could we could go hang out. Where I'm organizing a little symposium to go along with it. Oh. So it'll it'll be it'll be really cool. Okay. Yeah, I'm gonna have to talk to you about this more for sure. Okay, <laughs> excellent. Well, thank, thank you so you. much. As always, this was a huge pleasure. Oh, and so I look forward to doing this again sometime. Yes. When you've seen the movie with The Rock and Hercules. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. Thank you to Amy for coming on the podcast. It was so much fun to chat, as you can tell in the episode you just listened to. I just want any excuse to talk about Greek tragedy and to hear from people who have studied it so, so much more than I have and who know the ancient Greek. Ugh. Just so cool. So huge thanks. You can follow Amy on Twitter, like she said, and I've put her handle in the episode's description. And especially if you're interested in studying classics in university or college, as you Americans say, I'd recommend following Amy and a lot of my guests, really, because but Amy is really active in student outreach and just generally classics outreach. And so many of my guests are in the absolute best of ways, the most welcoming and inclusive of ways. So if you are a Twitter person, it's it's really nice to interact in those spaces and you really get a sense of like how classics can be. And if you love tragedy as much as I do and are in university or high school in Canada or the US right now, stay tuned because Amy and I recorded a little announcement of something that is just super duper cool, something that you can partake in that's coming soon. Let's Talk About Myths Baby is written and produced by me, Liv Albert. Michaela Smith is the Hermes to my Olympians and also handles so many podcast-related things from running the YouTube to creating promotional images and videos to editing and research. The podcast is hosted and monetized by Acast. 
Thank you all, as always. I fucking love my job. I am Liv, and oh my gods, I love Greek tragedy so much. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals. It's not about being the best in the world. It's about doing what's best for the world. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview Great Falls offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbionica is your solution to great-tasting, all-natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant-based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or toxins. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit Symbionica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to Symbionica.com. C-Y-M-B-I-O. T-I-K-A dot com.